The Triad Podcast Network is brought to you by Ashley McKenzie Sharp and the Sharp Mortgage Team, who are here to tell you that there are options for people in Winston-Salem ready to buy a home, but are hesitant because of interest rates. The Sharp Mortgage Team can help buyers in many ways, including using North Carolina down payment assistance and a program called the 2-1 Buy Down. How does it work? The buyer pays a fee at closing to reduce the interest rate on the buyer's mortgage by 2% in year one and 1% in the second year. This temporarily lowers the buyer's monthly payment to make the home more affordable. Then in two years, the buyer can look to reduce the interest rate by refinancing the house. Now that so many homes are on the market, this is a fantastic way to negotiate with the seller so that you both win. The Sharp team is here to help buyers all around the triad purchase their next home. Get started with a simple email, ashley at sharploans.com, A-S-H-L-E-Y at S-H-A-R-P-E loans.com, ashley at sharploans.com. Yeah. Uh, If I bring up anything you don't want to talk about, you're welcome to just say that. (laughs) I will, because it's, uh, I love... You know, I've always, I've always loved reading and listening to people talk about records and whatever. But I also don't like really talking about my songs about like, you know, somebody says, hey, what's that song about? Mm. Like, that seems to be the last thing I want to tell somebody. That's um, cool. It's their, you know, it's theirs once they hear it. And, uh, and also, you're not always the best judge of what it is about. Yeah. You know, you had some little kernel that got it born, but, you know, and I've had lots of songs that people come up to me and say, is that about this? And and I'm saying, no, but that's a great, it's a great idea, (laughs) (laughs) you know, Um, you know, there's, there are like a strand of songwriters sing and folk singers and whatever that, that can tell great, you know, get up and tell great stories. And sometimes their stories are almost more of the show than the songs, you know, Yeah, but that's not me you know and i like songs that they they just leave a lot to the imagination and i like to leave it there you know yeah. you know there's yeah i mean there's so many people that i see and like oh he's good at that you know like he's funny and he's charming and he's doesn't spoil the song somehow you know even people like like richard thompson or somebody is a great he, he's okay at being personable but, you know, the people that I, you know, you're not going to see Bob Dylan just explain himself. Right. Or Neil Young or uh, any of those people. I went to see one of my new favorite singers, songwriters, this woman named Aldous Harding uh, a month or so ago. And her shows are, not only is there no explaining songs, there's no, there's barely an hello. I mean, there's not an hello. There was like a once or twice, maybe like a, Thank you. Mm. And that was it, you know, and it's just more like a seance or something than it is a rock show. Yeah. And the crowd was so perfect. They, between songs, they're dead quiet. She takes her time tuning, setting herself. It's like setting it until the air's right or whatever. She's not in any hurry to like say, hey, be kind to your bartenders and all that kind of nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's all, it's just, it is kind of a show. I mean, it's not a, she is putting on an act because I've seen different shows and every night they're, the choreography and everything's exactly the same. But it's, 
she's figured out that if she did something like, hey, how are y'all doing tonight? It's gone. The spell is like mm-hmm. broken. And so she's learned that it's just like she stays in that zone. And even when people maybe make a joke or say try to say something to her on stage, she'll just kind of, she's even said, don't, don't make me laugh. Yeah. Because it will be gone. <laughs> and you, you know, it sounds really pretentious, but it totally worked, you know. Um, hmm. But like, so, but, uh, but it's also self serving because I feel like I'm not good at that. Like every time I talk about something, or feel like I am supposed to be talking in a live show, you know, if you're supposed to somehow bridge that gap and make people like you or whatever. Yeah. I almost always regret talking. I'm just like, man, why did I do that? These songs, that's why you write songs. Yeah. Is because you there's things that you can't talk about, or you couldn't figure out how to talk about. You know, I think that's really right, man. But it's just for for me for me. You know, I mean, there's like I said, there's plenty of people that do it great and that make people love them because of that. Too. Yeah, I I feel like I don't want to lose what we're mm-hmm. on because mm-hmm. this is where a right. good spot. So I'm just going to throw in an intro. Yeah. I might like no keep do it. some of that. That's fine. And then, but I, I'm just going to keep rolling. So yeah, yeah. If it isn't obvious, I'm at the Red House with Jeffrey Dean Foster, and I'm really glad to be. So uh, I'm stoked you're here, man. I'm glad to be here. We've been talking about it for a year or two, and yeah. glad to get out here in the country. Yeah, so we're just talking about that sacred space that sometimes exists uh, with when you're on stage with an audience in front mm-hmm. of you, and the way to treat that, and the idea of the song and dissecting it and different things, and you brought to mind a couple things. Mm-hmm. I remember there's this record I have, a radio show that Iron and Wine was on. Do you, mm-hmm. Have you listened to him much? A little bit, yeah. I really like is, him yeah. a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has very songs that I think for a lot of people are just, they feel cryptic almost mm-hmm. or whatever. And I remember them, I remember the the radio show host asking him something like, so are you into talking about the meaning of songs? And he said, well, you know, they're not essays. There's mm-hmm. not, it's not like I set out to write a thing with a meaning there yeah. the best songs he said the the best of mine have multiple meanings and it's not really easy mm-hmm. to distinguish one from another and i was like yeah man i like that that makes sense because they i don't i don't like to just say this is what it's about and limit it to that when it's mm-hmm. something so poetic that it's like well yeah when you put a if you put a frame around it or whatever then that's that's all it's going to be yeah ever and uh you know, I think that's lim- just limits it for the listener. Um, but also, I just like I said, the songwriter I don't think always knows. So he's just maybe he's just making something up so he can that have too. something to say live. You uh-huh. know, you know, because you really could say almost anything if a song's like of you know uh, metaphorical enough. You could say almost anything and make a joke about it or a story, you know. And I'm sure a lot of these people, these that are good at that, good at that live, personable, good thing, you know, are good at that. Just mm-hmm. saying whatever they want. Politicians are like that, you know. You just decide if they're doing an interview, you, they can figure out a way to say exactly what they want to say, no matter what you ask them. Mm-hmm. And that's the way you, you know, interviews are like that. You know, if you're doing, I'm sure celebrities, the ones that are good at media or whatever have figured out how to this is what i'm going to get across yeah regardless of what you ask me there's like an always an ideal mm-hmm. message that's over yeah. top everything else yeah yeah but so i'm yeah like i said it's a it's kind of a 
paradox because I lo- as a young person I loved reading about music records recording records touring live shows I loved reading all those things and I like seeing documentaries about people and see how they do it but as soon as someone starts to say this song is about or I wrote this about I almost just like uh, mm. nope you know um not always, but but a lot of times because I don't I don't want to hear that you know whether it's Pete Townsend or uh, you know I mean you know Ode to Billy Joe I mean it's about as specific a song as you can get and you still don't know what happened <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah Ex- except that her you know in the BBC videos that she made for that song her blue suit and her eyeshadow looks perfect you know and that was just enough you know like there's not a better looking rock you know you have to go to like Ziggy Stardust to get better looking than that you know Mm. Um, so yeah I'm fine not knowing what things mean because you feel them or not you know just like movies or whatever there's some people that can't watch a movie without stopping it what did that what what did that mean yeah what happened there you know and i'm just like no just i also wash over me with that in mind i remember once uh i reached a point with movies where i couldn't think about i couldn't not think about like lighting and scripts because you can see you're seeing it yeah thinking about it yeah well it's kind of like listening to records if you've been a if you've made records you know you know when we were 12 or 13 years old and you heard Al Green on the radio you just heard the song but if once you've been in a studio you hear that snare drum and you hear like oh how they do that and or yeah how in the world do they do that that is so good you know but yeah once you hear, know that process then you sometimes it is hard to see the big picture so yeah. I think somehow keeping that sausage making assembling part out of it uh, is important, you know, because most of the records that we there's no set way of making records at all. Mm-hmm. You know, you know that whether it's Elvis Presley Sun Sessions or whatever, you know, that people think are like the almost the one of the ground zero of these rock and roll records. You know, they thought about that. They just don't want you to know about that they mm-hmm. worked hard at it. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know. I mean, it wasn't. It didn't just happen. You know, and most records are like that. Yeah, um, that's a good point. I mean, there were some Bob Dylan records where you know that they didn't think about it much, and that's why they're great. You know, because he, you know, he's been very cagey, but he acts like he didn't even know you could overdub until 1978 <laughs> or something. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think you pretty much <laughs> stuck to that. You know. Yeah. So, so you you just you were you were born in Winston, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when did you like know you wanted to do the music thing? It was a pretty late. I was pretty late bloomer to that because as a kid I was just a music fan nerd, you know, that just like would stay up late at night listening to headphones and listening to radio and my records and just dissecting every little thing. But I was it didn't occur to me all that I could do it. Um, I was a baseball player. Played baseball every in every configuration that I could at every age up until college, you know. And, and um, but then when we got into college, I uh, met some guys that were just kind of like-minded, but they weren't really musicians either. Um, but we just loved music, and we thought about it, and we would stay up all night just thinking, like we. 
we can do that. We couldn't. I mean, we had no skills really to do it. I took I took guitar lessons when I was nine or ten, but they didn't really stick because it was a classical guitar player who was really great. He's kind of a world class player at the time, and he was teaching me to grow my fingernails and read music and play. Mm. Old McDonald had a farm or whatever, and. And at the time, I was much more interested in watching Gilligan's Island or the Munsters or something. And um, but if he would have taught me to play a Chuck Berry song or a Credence song, I would might have been off, man. I was just like, you know. But yeah. it d- didn't connect. The songs, in some ways, are kind of easy. You know, if you had told me if you do this, you play this A, the other chords are probably going to be D and E. Mm. You know, they don't tell you that stuff. Right. You know, they make you, want to make you go through the whole thing. But if they told you, if you do da-da-da-da-da-da-da, it's going to sound like Chuck Berry. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But that's too that's a, too much of a shortcut, you know. <laughs> um, so maybe it was good that he didn't, you know, I didn't get it then. But, yeah, I just kept being a fan of all kinds of things. I loved radio because back when I was a kid, Top 40 radio was great because you really could hear Al Green next to Badfinger and then into Roxy Music even, you mm. know, so you could hear all that stuff. Um, and and in college, we, uh, some of my guys, we just decided, well, we're going to figure this out, you know. And several years later, I mean, not even that many years later, let's say 80, we probably started playing around 81 or 2, I guess. And by 86, I mean... I had a record deal with Arista Records. We just we fo- we were we were very focused, and knowing that we weren't like top class pickers, we, none of us were like great players. We just like figured out what we could do, and we practiced like crazy. And so we were, for a brief moment, you know, a year or so, we were really good at what we did, and um, and now look, looking back, it's like wow, we got a lot done you know quickly it didn't turn out to be anything because it was just our record deal was like a two and a half year exercise in humility mm. which we learned a lot about how to take it mm. you know um but yeah but of now i've gotten a little bit better at playing not much i'm still don't i still don't value that very much I value in other people. I mean, I see it in other people. Like, man, they are really great. Yeah. And they're just things are coming off their fingers and their voice that you know they're just be- they're musical, beautiful, you know. And I think whatever it is that I do is something else. It's some other make making songs somehow. You know, yeah. I just kind of cobble them together with what little skills I have. You know, and and sometimes those little skills are better than the than the guys that can really play. I mean, you know, because you just yeah. do different things, you know. Exactly. But the ideal is when you find somebody who can really play that still has that spirit, you know, that still remembers that it's not about notes and it's not about or how many you play and it's not about what you learned at music school or whatever. It's, uh, you know, they can keep that in the back of their mind, use it, you know, because that's something that I don't have. I don't have much, any kind of theory. Yeah, you know, my theory really did come from Top Forty Radio, and then eerie, huh? Eerie, eerie is music eerie. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, we, <laughs> that's a million dollar idea right there. <laughs> so, 
um, yeah, it really was just like, and at the time I wasn't a musician, really. So I wasn't sitting around when I heard Badfinger on the radio, I didn't sit down and try to play the guitar. I just didn't even occur to me. It's like, that's just a beautiful sound. And then later in my twenties, when we started trying to have bands, you know, I had to kind of start from scratch. Like, just like, I don't, you know, just plinking along, you know, and, but we, my first band, you know, we, we right off the bat started trying to write songs because we knew that's what we wanted to do. Instead, we didn't want to be a cover band because we just didn't think we could do that. Mm. Like, we can't sound like that. But, um, but we still had to get, we wanted to play. So our first few, you know, year or two, we would play bars up around Boone and we lived in Boone and Appalachian State. And uh, so we had to have covers, you know. But they were everything that we could think of that just represented kind of music that we liked or that led up to music that we liked. You know, whether it was Buddy Holly and uh, Motown songs and even like weird Springsteen songs and Rolling Stone songs and, you know, I Fought the Law and just like kind of not bar band songs because they weren't the kind of songs that people wanted to go hear in a bar, mm. but they were made mostly by kind of garage band type bands you know and uh so you know we had a bunch of those songs so we could play two or three hours a night in sweaty places and get kind of good at that and as we kept writing more songs then you can get rid of some of the covers and then i guess not that many years later we had you know we just did our own songs yeah you know just like you know you have i mean you've always your bands have always written your own songs. You know, I think at the time, it, people that we liked, like Springsteen and some of them, did do covers live. You know, like he like he had a vast, you know, repertoire of like rock classic kind of things that he grew up listening mm. to. And so we thought that was okay. You know, it's yeah. cool to have that as like a reference points and stuff, you know. Um, and so I've, there's a, I made a Spotify playlist a year so of all the songs that I've or all songs I can remember that I've ever covered really I'll have to I'll have to send you that I it's, it's that pretty good it's pretty good because it's got everything from you know Kate Bush and Bananarama to um you know to Bob Dylan and the Rolling Stones you know man I might have to borrow that idea I'd be very curious to see how yeah. many songs I could actually yeah. have so played. And it was over the, you know, some of them we played a lot, you know, that were part of our thing. Some of them were songs that I just played one time because I just wanted to do it that night, you know. Yeah. Um, but they're all very representational of, like, something that that I loved. You know, there's not many there's not many gags on there. Yeah. It's not like, oh, he, ironically. The only one that, he, I'm not sure if that was ironic. Somebody wanted me to play Muskrat, Muskrat Love. And they really liked it. was like their his couple was at the show who was real nice, big fans, you know. And they were kind of jokingly saying that was their song when they were like teenagers, you know. Mm. And I actually like learned it. And it's got a bunch of weird chords that I don't ordinarily play, mm. kind of jazzy things, you know. And I did it enough to get through it, you know. And like, you know. It's easy to laugh at that kind of song, but when you hear it, it's like, man, I love songs that don't sound like anything else. Yeah. Like, how, who would have written that? How did they come up with that? <laughs> and, and put really great chords to it. So they weren't, it wasn't just a, a joke. Yeah. You know, and that song, the album that that's off of, um, 
what's the guy's name that wrote it? He made one album that's become this like odd, weird classic, mm. and he stopped. That's it. And it's mm. and the rest of them are kind of country, country rock, country folk songs, you know. But Muskrat Love is one of his songs. Um, but he he made a great exit, <laughs> disappear. This show is presented by the Ginther Group, a real estate team based right here in the Triad, and the only ones we trust here on the Triad Podcast Network. I've been podcasting with Blake Ginther and his team for a few years now always blown away by how well the experts at the Ginther Group can make sense of a rapidly changing and oftentimes chaotic real estate market. I know I feel smarter after each episode we record right here on the Triad Podcast Network. Then when it came to sell a home, I chose the Ginther Group. They steered me in the right direction at all times in terms of how much time and money to invest in order to maximize the things I wanted out of the transaction. And we ended up selling for nearly 10% above asking. Look, I can't guarantee you the same results, but why wouldn't you at least meet with them and see what's possible? Call 336-283-8689 or visit theginthergroup.com to see if The Ginther Group can help you own your future. Now back to the show. I think I remember, I I guess I wouldn't know if it was ironic either, but at a New Year's show, we pulled out uh, all apologies by Nirvana one time. Oh, yeah. uh-huh. That was kind of like just because it was New Year's and we were just kind of throwing stuff out mm-hmm. randomly. Mm-hmm. We did that night. We did losing my religion. Uh-huh. That was really epic and weird. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there was a bunch of just little moments like that, like miniature covers because mm-hmm. we didn't do the whole song. I've done some of that in the past where I've just put covers in my songs too, yeah. like little parts of them in it or whatever. That's fun. And that's fun to sometimes you. Your song reminds you of that one, or vice versa, or the beat or the chords or something work, you know, and it's fun to try to wedge them in there, you know. And you don't have to learn the whole song either. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So let me ask you this, man. So a guy starts a band a couple couple years later, has Mm -hmm. a record deal, Mm -hmm. out of North Carolina in the 80s. Mm -hmm. Like, I guess first, were you... Were you in Boone? Was did it build up while you were in Boone, or did it build up while you were in town here? It started at Boone when we were just like I said, when we were just trying to start a band and figure out how to play, yeah. and um, we kept playing a little bit wider range of places, and then we, when some of the rest of the guys graduated and finished college, we moved to Winston because mm-hmm. um, we had been coming down here a lot. Because I lived here, but staying with my parents, and they were always feeding us and everything, and um, so we uh, we just ended up here, living out on in Southside, Winston Salem, and we started playing uh, just a little wider because we didn't have to go to school at all, so we were just going, and we played just up and down the East Coast. We didn't go out west, but we played. We went up to New York a lot, and every place between there and then, and went down to. Alabama and Georgia and South Carolina a lot and we weren't really thinking about uh, trying to get a record I mean we we just thought like well that's something that can happen because we'd seen people that we kind of knew like we kind of we were we knew REM and we knew Let's Active and we saw that happen we saw and even though they were all very different bands and we were different from them but we just saw that well that can happen Hmm. from you don't have to be 
have big hair and be from LA to do it, or you don't have to be a New York artist to do it. You can, it can happen. And so we just had those as role models. And then you, and, and then we just got back to work playing and writing songs and just kept playing until and we put out, made some little cassettes and sent them to a few people, but we didn't do like record label, you know, mass mailings or anything. Right. And we just kept doing it until some people noticed and called us and I'm still proud that we did it that way. You know, we just like kept doing it until somebody else took notice. And we got some managers that way. And um, then we kept playing some more. And, uh, you know, we'd go to New York and they would, people would come see us. And uh, it was very, uh, looking back, it's like we, we didn't hustle on the business side much at all. We hustled on the playing yeah. Side, and um, but there wasn't you know nowadays there's like the whole hustle of like the whole internet thing and there's ways to become famous. Yeah, there wasn't really any way back then. You know, you just had to do it and get lucky. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we got these manager guys that could help a little bit, although they managed the replacements as well, and so they had their hands full a lot just trying to keep the placements out of you know jail or the hospital or something you mm-hmm. know and um but they were great like you know so we uh yeah it seemed looking back on it it seemed like kind of easy in a way because i think we didn't think about it much we just kept playing until it happened you know we weren't like now later like after all that first thing happened and and it kind of fell apart a few years later. Then the trying to reconnect with the record business or whatever, then that was hard and next to impossible. Like mm-hmm. it, then it seemed like, oh, this is how did this is impossible? But the first time it seemed like it was just a natural progression because I think labels were for a little while they were just looking for rock and roll bands, you know, because of some things that had happened. You know, there was the REM thing that had happened. There was even the harder rock things like Guns N' Roses or whatever, you know, people were uh, trying to sign rock, you know, going to see them. I mean, record company people would fly from all over the country into some little town to see us or many other bands play. And I just don't think that happens anymore. Yeah. No, I mean, they wait to see you on TikTok or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Or uh, or Conan O'Brien, you know. Yeah. 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 I think they wait to see that you've made your own way. Yeah. And then they swoop in and like, oh, we can help you. I have a lot of feelings about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sure. Yeah. I I don't have a lot of faith in it. And I think it's because I've talked to, I've talked to Doug about this, talked to Richard about this. We've Mm -hmm. been having these conversations um, between... There's a fly in here or something. <laughs> Man, I hate those little fuckers. So, anyway, I've had this conversation with a lot of people now, and I think what it comes down to for me is, like, I think for a long time I believed that what we were doing in this industry was, like, kind of uh, trying to let the cream rise to the top, trying to, like, it was, it was mm-hmm. I think, perceived and is perceived mm-hmm. by people who love music as a meritocracy of sorts, where mm-hmm. it's, like... You know, oh, if the 
if it's if it's on Rolling if it's in Rolling Stone, it's because it's the best music. Mm-hmm. Or if it's on MTV, not M- not the yeah, MTV, but in, in its day, exists, I mean, even in the sixties or seventies, yeah. if you made it to the radio, then that must be they must be some of the best bands in the country. Yeah, and in the eighties, if they're on MTV and Rolling Stone, then somehow that has weeded out and and elevated those best bands but yeah. that's not the case right you know sometimes it is i mean it's the, not that they're the, the, worst repla- bands, the replacements yeah. were on magazine covers and they deserved it yeah tom petty and the heartbreakers were on covers and they deserved it um but it's still a big business that is uh has a lot of make-believe in it and a lot of you know just things that don't have anything to do with music um but it can be kind of soul crushing when you think that it, uh, when you do try to put some stock into it until you step back and realize no that having that kind of success doesn't at all grade or value my songs yeah you know you know I would have it'd been great to have had like some weird little hit song or something one day but uh, but you just can't control any of those things. You know, there's there's some artists that are, you know, that are kind of so undeniable that you just even through the record business, a whole maze of bull, you know, someone like Prince or something like, okay, he's the best. He deserves to be everywhere. Yeah. You know, and he worked hard. At, he, I mean, he worked hard at it. I mean, there's videos of them rehearsing, dancing and playing they didn't. That didn't happen either. They worked hard at that, you know, and and all and he could do everything better than everybody else, you know, <laughs> and um, so there's those kind of people that you can't argue with, you know. They're just like, okay, that's what the records are for, you know, and there's people like, you know, until two months ago, there was my imaginary girlfriend Kate Bush who never had a hit record, really. <laughs> But her records, especially like Hounds of Love, I mean, that's, you know, that's what records are made for, mm. is to capture that kind of weird personal thing, you know. Um, but there's plenty of people that we love that, you know, that lived outside of the record business almost, you know. Yeah. But um, but it, it's it's changed. I mean, back in the 70s, there was... There weren't that many people making records. I mean, records came out every week, and you could go to the record store, and you could pretty much see all the records that came out. Right. And at least in your, you wouldn't maybe see all of the jazz records and all of the new classical records, whatever, but pop records, you could see the everybody that came out. And he's like, oh, okay, that's great. There's <laughs> Ian Hunter's got a new record, you know. You can't now. It's, I know. Uh, it's crazy. Because there's probably a couple hundred thousand every week i don't know oh yeah well i want to find out <laughs> i remember the figure and the figure is kind of scary uh how many songs are released on spotify every day <laughs> Sixty thousand tracks. <laughs> Sixty thousand tracks a day yeah so yeah you don't really get to hear all of those <laughs> no no yeah the i mean there's a kind of a thought experiment about the 60s and 70s about the way the record company business worked is you know you couldn't make a record on your own really you had to go to some studio and you had to talk somebody into pressing records and you had to talk somebody into 
distributing it, you know, which meant record companies had, you know, most of the power. Um, but it made, you know, you could say, well, it kind of weeded out a bunch of right, not that serious records, you know, if you just weren't really great at playing or you weren't a great songwriter or, or even not great, but just like novel. You know, there's funny novelty songs that, that made it through too. They deserve to come through if they entertain somebody. Yeah. Um, but at least it weeded it out. You know, there's like, um, but now there's no, there's no weeding out. It's just every, everybody's making records. And the flip side of that is like, well, in the old days, these old cigar chomping businessmen were deciding who was good. Right. And not giving all these cool people a chance. Um, and now everybody can make records and mm-hmm. put it out that, that, make a record that morning and put it out that night. And that that should be great. So, so I don't know. I don't know what's cool anymore. I did used to like hearing the top 40. And you could go through, you know, I was 15 years old or something. And half of them I'd really like, you know? Half of them I could tell, like, well, that's, that's a dumb song. But, but, you know, and then you could go off from there and you found, okay, I like that guy. Who's he played with before? Or who's, what band was she in or whatever? And you go back and you start finding your group of records. You know, even if you grew up in 70, you know, six or seven, when Fleetwood Mac and Fleetwood Mac Rumors came out, you got those records and you loved them and then you realize oh they've been making records for 15 years mm-hmm. and you go back and you listen to Peter Green you listen to Bob Welch record, Peter Green uh, Fleetwood Mac records and so you find those things and and I assume that's the way kids do it now if they hear one band or act I guess if it's like a hip hop song they hear it and they're like oh who's that guy oh he did a verse on that record or whatever you know stuff that i don't understand but that's it's the same thing you know yeah i do think that world is better at that for the reason mm-hmm. of collaboration i think in oh, yeah. the other genres it's less of that and i don't I know i so. mean it depends like if you're if we're talking about spotify i have such a passive even me mm-hmm. as a music enthusiast of mm-hmm. sorts i like i i can hear a song i love and it just be like um, I'm not going to disrupt this whole process of listening to whatever's been curated on here. I'm not going to mm-hmm. disrupt that by figuring out who this is and going through their catalog and dedicating the time and the mm-hmm. like the focus of my mind mm-hmm. to that. Because uh, with Spotify, I'm obvi- I'm uh, I'm I'm often hearing music kind of passively anyway. You, it's not like are. my it's not like sitting down and putting a record on the turntable and shit. Well, you know. Well, yeah. When I was a record buying kid. You know, I might buy a record a week or something, maybe maybe more, less, whatever. But you got that record, and you devoured every bit of it for that for the next month. You know, mm-hmm. in liner notes and headphones, and you focused on it, and you knew it, and you loved it. You know, and you might want to share it, or you might want to go find out, well, who was that guitar player? I'm gonna go find out more about him, whatever. But yeah, on, when it's a passive thing, like streaming or television or anything you just like it just all flows by you mm-hmm. know when when Fleetwood Mac put out their record Tusk I was in school and I literally spent about a month in every like evening hours I wasn't in school listening to it in headphones just because I thought I can't hear all this I like I gotta focus on this there's too much going on mm-hmm. here and I want to hear it and I did and 
it's still like my one of my favorite records and it's still one that when i'm in the studio or with a band or with producers or whatever that i reference you know and some of them know exactly what what i'm talking about some of them know why it's great some of them have no idea why is he going on about this hmm. weird record um but there's so many things that i do that i still have in my head from that you know and it's funny after i've been like preaching or proselytizing to some of my friends about tusk and then see them come back and play something on my records and i'm like oh i know where that came from <laughs> you're giving it back to me now you know <laughs> so I'm, yeah. I'm very passive about passive aggressive maybe and like <laughs> pushing my thoughts on them you know right until they just can't help it you know do you do you uh, do you, would it be weird if i asked more about this story that we've been kind of we walked up to mm-hmm. and like what happened with you in the industry and like all that shit. Like, Oh, I've read uh, articles about that and mm-hmm. things you've said about it before, but I don't know. You, you mind talking about that? No, it's, um, in a way it's very, in a way it's very kind of complicated and very not, yeah, it's not tragic or sad or anything. It's just, it was, but in another way, it's very common. You know, it wasn't like I don't think we were very special. Um, but what happened? Like I said, we got we just kept playing until we got people wanting to see us and telling us to come to New York and play for them. And and we went, you know, finally wound up. We played it. Places like CBGBs and record companies would come down and see us play. And the next day, we'd they would have us at the record at their offices. And a few months later, we signed with a record company and um and so we uh they were we knew the we knew none of the companies were perfect and also i knew that we were a long way from actually releasing a record mm-hmm. you know other people got kind of excited or maybe even kind of cocky like hey we're, look what we did you know like hold your horses bud you know we got a long way to go and um but we did we moved to New York out right outside of New York City for some weird reason I don't know why I think they thought that we needed to be there to play for future producers like to figure out who was going to help us make our record and being around a big city there would be more people there or whatever in retrospect I don't think that was anything um, but we lived up there for about nine or ten years nine or ten months and um one bad consequence is we almost stopped playing live. We had played live all the time and gotten good at what we did. And once we get up there, we didn't play hardly any shows. We just stayed out in our garage and were expected to write songs and mm. you know get more and more songs for this potential record, you know. And um, we, you know, we got some some good songs out of it. But I think, or I think we should have been just out playing and just letting something happen, you know. Um, uh, but after a while, we finally talked them into letting us work with Jim Dickinson, who made, um, he's kind of this weird, legendary Memphis cat. You know, he made, uh, he played piano on Wild Horses and played piano with Aretha Franklin. And, and then he went on to make, like, Big Star record. He made the Big Star third record, and, and he's produced a lot of other people. Um, but he was a real redneck Southern artist, like a weirdo guy, and we and so we liked that. 
and he came to New York to try to convince them to let him make a record. And he wore, he was wearing this like satin, like wrestler's jacket, you know, like, and, uh, and I appreciated that because he was, he, he knew he wanted to make a outsider impression, you know, and they let, they said, yeah, we'll let you do it with Jim Dickinson and Dickinson and Dickinson swears he's passed now, but he used to swear that they agreed to it because they thought he was Jim Dixon who made birds records. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but so we went to uh, we went to Memphis to start making a record, and um, we went to Sun not Sun Studios but Sam Phillips Studios where he bought after he sold Sun Studio after mm-hmm. he kind of sold Elvis he built his own studio where they made like Wooly Bully and uh, Cramps records and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Uh, but we went there and as just kind of a pre-production thing just to see if we could get along and see if we could make something and worked for just i don't know a little while made five or six songs i think and um and then everybody kind of liked them although they weren't meant to be the finished record but everybody kind of liked them enough to think well okay we can go to the next stage and make a real record so we moved to ardent records ardent studios where they made Big Star Records and ZZ Top Records and mm. that kind of stuff, and um, and that was a whole different experience. Like we weren't quite prepared for how perfect everything was expected to be back then, time wise, tuning everything, and we thought Dickinson would fight against that for us because he was such an outsider artist. But I think he thought that this could be his first big like a pop record in mm. a way. And the record company kind of had that in his head, you know. And uh but he was my he was my fan too. You know, he he's kind of my patron too and he wanted the best for me. Um but so he kept thinking, well, if we can just make these first few songs and make something that will keep get them happy, then we can make the rest of the record cool and weird, you know. And uh but we made these first five and it was just so wrong that I'm the one that kind of had to pull the plug on it and just say this isn't good you know let's I don't know what you're going to do about it but we got to start over <laughs> and um yeah, yeah I mean they were willing to go on they thought well this is okay you know but I was like no it's not okay cuz it it just sucked all the life out of what we did which was which was kind of ramshackle and rough and uh there was people using, you know, we were using the old keyboard called the Fairlight, which everybody made, with Kate, which Kate Bush made famous and used it the right way. But when you use it to try to make rock records, it's just dumb. Um, ZZ Top used it, but they used it in kind of a good comic book way mm-hmm. to make things like Legs and Give Me All Your Love and those kind of songs, um, which sound like a machine anyway. You know, it sounds like a real funny hot rod, mm-hmm. you know, but when you're trying to make kind of sensitive singer songwriter rock and roll it's it was weird um but i did say i don't think we should put this out you know and so they were like well okay we'll just start over we'll start looking for new producers and 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 so then but then it just never quite happened fast enough you know um they would recommend something and it would be outrageous and dumb and then or i would have some idea and they would just look at me like i was from mars you know Mm. um they wanted they I wanted us to do some cover songs. They thought that would be a way to have like a first single as a cover. And the ones that they would send me were just atrocious. And I would tell them 
and then they would get mad at me. <laughs> and then they finally would say, well, what would you do? And I sent them a tape of three songs that I thought were totally reasonable. I wasn't trying to take the piss at them. I was, there was a George Harrison song, a Tom Waits song, and a Johnny Thunder song that were all I saw as pop songs. I wasn't trying to make a... I wasn't trying to make a statement, you know. Which Tom Waits song, by the way? I think it was called uh, Hang Down Your Head, I think, from Rain Dogs, maybe. And a Johnny Thunder song called She's So Untouchable, I think. And the George Harrison song was that uh, What Is Life, is that what it's called? It's a total hit. I mean, it was like a hit for him. Um, But they didn't see any any sense in that Mm -hmm. Um, so after two and a half years and this all took two and a half years of some band changes I mean mainly the core band but my original kind of songwriting partner Stephen Dubner he quit after the first trip to Memphis and just decided he wanted to be a writer Mm. literary writer and he's very successful now he wrote Freakonomics and he's the Freakonomics guy that's cool yeah so I hear him on the radio every week and like Stephen Dubner Freakonomics I'm like hey Steve um, <laughs> he's a great guy and we had a few guitar changes but it was always me and Johnny Worcester the drummer and my friend Tim playing bass um, so after just back and forth of them wanting us to do things and not finding like a perfect producer or whatever we took one last trip to New York and our manager said we're going to go up there and we're going to play for them if they don't say okay let's go and make the record now with somebody we're going to ask to be released you know and we played and Clive Davis came out of his limo for a few minutes and came in and see us all and so the next morning they had a big meeting and and uh, we weren't there, but it was supposedly very dramatic because all the Arista people, some of them really did like us. Like they thought of us as like their little kid brothers, you know, and they're like, we, they didn't want to screw us over, you know. Mm-hmm. And so they finally said, well, if we're going to let them go, then we're going to let them go without owing us all this money because they could have somehow held us to that. Like we, because they spent like a quarter of a million dollars on it, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, so somehow we got out of it without having to we were free you know and our managers came out just thrilled they're like this is great we're free we can just walk down the street to the next record you know record company they just thought like the next day was just going to be like going to all of them and like okay who's ready yeah for these great handsome southern boys <laughs> and but that just did not happen you know it just wasn't as easy as that and um so it just uh the next few years were just us trying to figure out a way back in and playing some shows, getting a new manager that took us out to California and we played and nothing much happened. People would come see us and I think we were just uh I think we were psychically kind of broken in a way. Mm-hmm. Me and my f- friend Johnny Worcester who plays now, he's still a he's the he's the best current professional musician of all of us he plays with the mountain goats and john and bob mould and super chunk as their drummer mm. and he's like the indie rock drummer and he's the best guy and he's also kind of an online comedian like some people know him better as a comedian than they do as a drummer mm. um but i think we did just like we didn't realize it at the time but i think it did just kind of uh 
break us in a way, you know, and it took us a while. And so Johnny just, you know, he left eventually after this trip to California and some of the rest of them left. And uh, so it was just me like starting over, just like, you know, do I want to keep writing songs? And and uh, so eventually I did, and I had a, a batch of songs. And Don Dixon, who has been one of my oldest friends in the, you know, record business, you know, he heard him. He's like, let's just make let's make a record, you know. And so he came down to uh, he was coming to Charlotte to Reflection Studios where he used to make a lot of records. And he said, I'm coming down tomorrow. Let's make, let's record some. And, you know, we bar- I had a, kind of had a band, but I said, okay, we'll be there. And so we recorded three songs all in one night. And I think we even almost mixed them that night. I mean, they were done and they were good. And they were the beginning of what became the record uh, called The Pine Tops. I had a band called The Pine Tops. And that was like three songs that were on that record. And so a few months later, we came out to my barn in Pufftown. And he set up in the studio, in the barn, and made a studio. And we recorded what became this Pine Tops record called Above Ground and Vertical. And um, that had, and that, there's still songs in there that we play, you know. Still, there's a song called So Lonesome I Could Fly that uh, for some reason has had a life, kind of a little bit of life, like it's been in several TV shows and movies, and um, other some other people have sung it. And I still play it, still like it all right. Um, and that was released on some rec- real record labels, but they were relatively small. There was one here in, in Boston and one in another one in uh, Germany. Um, and we played it South by Southwest from at that time. And, um, and then that kind of, like all these things, they just kind of run their course, you know, and people have real lives and they have real things that they kind of have to get to or they've decided I'm going to do this now I'm going to be a I'm not going to be a bass player I'm going to be a this kind of guy yeah and um but so I had you know I had work I had jobs I either worked you know I was younger I worked some with my dad we had a sporting goods store and then as I got got older I painted houses and I did stuff so I could keep playing music yeah and and also when I got married and had a child i kept painting houses so i could be a good dad and uh take off if i had to or do things with my daughter you know and so i was the one that could do those things um but all that time i kept i did keep making uh songs at home and they just kind of became the records that i've made in the last 15 years or whatever you know made one called million star hotel and one called the arrow and then uh, and another little weird EP that came out. It was kind of an accident. It was just live recordings that I made, mostly at the garage, with just a little dat, one mic. And just I did them just to see what I sounded like, really. And mm-hmm. Dick, Don Dixon heard them, and he said, you should put this out as a record. He said, I said, why? He's like, it will enhance your reputation as a weirdo. <laughs> 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 and... Um, so that came out kind of after the Pine Tops, before Million Star Hotel, I think. Um, and then I made that one last year uh, called I'm, St- I'm Starting to Bleed. Mm-hmm. And that was an EP. And that one I did all, all at home by myself, pretty much, with a little help of sending it to some friends that played keyboards or whatever on it. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah the whole record biz thing was a lot happened in two or three years like looking back on it now like it seemed like it was a long it seemed like it was a big thing but now look it's like man this is compressed a couple years of you know kind of being excited having some hopes and thinking i don't i I didn't let myself get ahead of the idea of that oh we're gonna we're already we've made it you know i knew we had made it and i kept reminding our other pals like you know we're not close to that yet you know um but if I'll be honest, I did think, well, something's going to happen. Yeah. I'm not sure what's going to happen. Of what course, kind of, you would. what kind of record? I'm not sure what the record's going to sound like, or what the videos are going to look like, or. But you know, because we had managers and we had a record label, you kind of just think because they even had like release dates for the record in Billboard magazine. You know that I would see like the Pine Tops coming out in spring '87 or whatever, and so you do think something's going to happen. Absolutely, and. um so when it doesn't, it's just uh, uh, it's a it's a little bit to think about, you know, when you're 26, whatever years old. Um, and I think one thing that just occurred to me in the last year or two that kind of s- stuck with us or stuck with me is that and I, that I'm trying to shake is that when we came back home from like New York and also just the biz biz in general it almost seemed like people treated us like um almost like war heroes or something mm. like we had gone and kind of fought hard and lost but they also still kind of expected us to wear our uniform or something like that's what they wanted us to be like oh he's they did great they're good good guys they they tried mm. you know and that kind of freezes you and like amber you know you're like that's what they wanted you to be and so i had to like you know recently i've just realized no that's not who i am you know and that's not and it wasn't that big a deal even though it at the time it seemed kind of like a big thing but bands that happens to bands all the time all over the country you know it's just that we were here and people knew us here and i'm sure every town has their favorite band that went off and then they wonder like why didn't they have records on the radio they sound as good as yeah. what's on the radio you know and and they may have sounded just as good it's just that there's so many things that go into it that that this just has to be it's just all that luck you know you have to have a the band has to be good you have to look a certain way of of the time you have to have the right kind of manager lawyer business stuff and uh and maybe find a producer that's really uh wants to be almost part of the band or that's like really sympathetic to you you know i think the way tom petty and them found jimmy Iovine to like whip them into shape and make those like damn the torpedoes Mm. and records the few records after that and just kind of teach them how to do it you know and uh our friends the del fuegos they our managers managed them and they had this guy named mitchell Froome who still makes records and soundtrack things and he's the one that kind of took them and taught them how to make records, you know. And we just didn't quite have that. You know, we never had. So I think you have to have all these luck things. You know, nowadays you don't have to have all that. Right. Because you can make it on your computer mm-hmm. and put it out the next day. <laughs> yeah. And I still don't know if that's better or worse. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it depends. But <laughs> Because there's... It's like you said, if there's 60,000 records coming out every day, yeah. 
then who's going to hear them? You know, I don't know. Something you said really stuck with me. Uh-huh. The part about the uniform, part about coming back, mm-hmm. having lost the war or whatever, mm-hmm. and that. I notice a lot of times when I'm out in town uh, and when I see people that have known me for years, mm-hmm. they get this look in their eye. <laughs> and it's like, You still playing music? That's exactly it. You still playing your music and the, like with the tilt of the head and like, with the oh, that's, that's, that's darling. Like, that you exactly, still play music. Exactly. That's sweet of you. That's, and it you is keep so, it uh, yeah, so patronizing. Even when they mean, they, even when they totally mean well. Of course, but like... Mm-hmm. It is. It's like if it were the other way around. If I were an Avit brother, you know, it would be like music was this triumphant word that was like, uh, you know, look how you defied the odds. Look how reality really opened up to reward you for your skills or whatever. But mm-hmm. because because I'm not playing to amphitheaters full of like twenty thousand people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, music is this word that means like dream that wasn't realized or yeah. hasn't been realized or something in some kind of failure or some kind of uh yeah like a, even if they consider it noble it's still a noble fighting at the windmills or whatever yeah um yeah and you and even when people say that your success like well, like in my work, when people like introduce me to somebody else or whatever, they'll say, "Oh, Jeff, he's he's the rock star," you know. And then you, that's even weirder because then you have to explain, like, "No, I'm not. I'm not." <laughs> but there's some truth to it. I do. Some people do know who I am. Some people have heard my records. Yeah. But you don't want to have to explain all that. Right. You don't want to have to explain your. You know, it's it's the flip side of having to explain people why they should like you. You know, which is exhausting, <laughs> yeah. and I've given up. <laughs> yeah, you know, like sending letters. You know, back in the day, we used to have to send cassette tapes or whatever, and letters, real letters to record companies. You know, yeah. and you try to, you have to explain why they should pay attention to you. And of course, there's, you know, people that get paid to do that. You know, to, you know, publicists and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, that's one side of it is showing, you know, talking somebody in why you're good, you know, why they should spend their time with you. And on the other flip side is like when they say you're, you know, the next question, if somebody says, hey, you're a, he's the, he's the rock star. He's the one that's got a band. Then the next question is like, well, have I heard you? Um, you like, well, I don't know. Have right. you heard me? Probably not. <laughs> Does that mean I'm not any good? Right. <laughs> Maybe it is. Maybe it doesn't mean that. I don't know. Then um, there's just every there's just layers of questions that open up. You know that you feel like you have to explain, mm-hmm. but I don't usually explain it because I have kind of adopted a motto that I think came from Lemmy from Motorhead by way of Chrissy Hine from Pretenders, who said, "Don't complain, don't explain." Mm. So I'm trying to leave it at that. I like that. Yeah. I, like good. I think it works in all aspects of life to yeah. some degree, you know, because I think a lot of times we're we're a lot of us are programmed to be nice and be liked, you know, or not disappoint somebody when they're asking you a question about something or, you know, because if they're really they may be concerned and want and want the best for you, you know, but you still, you know, I still think it's best to just. Leave it and just be a good person. Otherwise, you know, that's one thing that I think a lot of people that are 
musicians or artists or whatever go through. It's, it's an emotional thing. If it's not, you probably sh- shouldn't be doing it. Even people that probably act like they're not sensitive, emotional people, they are. If you're writing songs, you've, you've, you're accessing something, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's a little bit under the surface. Um, and when you're accessing those things, it can get, things can get in, you know, get infected or whatever, you know. And so you, people can get, it can make people have little cracks in them, you know. Yeah. So I feel lucky that I'm still relatively sane and relatively healthy. Yeah. And I have a great daughter and who's much more musically naturally musical than I am like she can really hear like every note and all the harmonies and just knows it you know and she has great taste and she's already she had her first DJ session of the year this year um, at her college out in California she's DJing mm-hmm. she's done a few did a few last year and then she did that one Sunday was the first one of this semester but it's great it's just all over the place from uh, you know Fela Kuti, world music to you know Joe Beam to there was one section where she played Bob Dylan, Cheap Trick, and Johnny Thunders in a row, and I'm like yeah okay that's that's my daughter. <laughs> Hell yeah, man! I know, I know. And she yeah she's a, and she's a great singer. I just sent her some recording gear so she could because she wanted to start working again on making some songs and all. When she was young. I remember one time over maybe a Christmas holiday or maybe in summer when she wasn't in school and she was just kind of laying around the house, staying in her PJs. And and I was thinking, like, you need to get up and get outside and, you know, get some sun, do something. And and I had to go to work, you know. And I came back and she was still in her pajamas. And so I'm like, what, you know, what did you do today? Did you get out and do something? So I, I recorded some stuff. And and she had this, she'd done this entirely solo version with all these parts of Space Oddity. <laughs> and it's like, that's a pretty good day's work. <laughs> it's like, okay. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> the Triad Podcast Network is sponsored by Jennifer Johnson, owner of Three Magnolias Financial Advisors and a local certified financial planner who helps people plan for big financial goals, such as retirement or college. Especially now, navigating markets is challenging, particularly for those gearing up for retirement, young professionals, business owners, or retirees. Am I saving enough for retirement? As a business owner, do I need a workplace retirement plan to attract and retain key employees? Am I using the right individual investment strategies? Personally, I had some of those questions. Plus, how do I save for my kids' college education? So I went and got local independent advice from Jennifer and her team at Three Magnolias Financial Advisors. They're located at Winston-Salem, and you can get started like I did with a complimentary, no-obligation consultation right here in the triad. Just call 336-701-1600 or email jennifer at the number 3-magnolias.com. Jennifer at 3-magnolias.com. 
And be sure to catch Jennifer's podcast covering all sorts of financial tips, trends, and strategies right here on this same feed with the Triad Podcast Network. Securities offered through Satara Advisor Networks, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Three Magnolias Financial Advisors. Three Magnolias Financial Advisors and Satara Advisor Networks are not affiliated. Satara is under separate ownership from any other named entity. I like the home recording setup, obviously. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's cool. I've, uh, there's some records that come to mind. Did you ever hear, um, you ever hear Benji, the Sun Kill Moon? Oh, yeah. I know of that. those records, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Benji, in particular, just like he, um, that's one that really sounds like home recordings, mm-hmm. and there's things about it that are so imperfect, and that re- that one is untouchable. It's mm-hmm. one of the best albums I've ever heard, you yeah. know, and I, I love that that exists and that he, you know, like... Uh, that 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 was made, and there's there's other moments like that, um, mm-hmm. even worse ones, even like Nebraska, or even oh, yeah. one of Keith Whitley's albums has uh, this song that he recorded with like a probably a two channel tape recorder. Mm-hmm. It sounds like I think you hear like the TV on in the background. And yeah, stuff. oh yeah. Well, and I guess Nebraska. I like Nebraska that. was one of the. I mean, people had little weird home setups for for years that. And, but they were always oddball guys that right. now are revered. But back then, nobody could put their records out, mm. you know. But but you're right. Nebraska was probably one of the first things that was not a studio polished thing that somebody had the wisdom at some point to like say, no, this is probably as good as it's going to get, mm. you know. Because they did record, they re-recorded almost all their songs with the E Street Band. I mean, there's versions of of all those things, and they're just not. It's cool, yeah. You know, so they had the wisdom to understand that. There's, but you're right. Like some home recordings, you know, most people now that do home recordings, they strive to make them sound as good as pop records. You right. know, you and it's almost in, whether it's pop music like Beyonce or whatever. You're, you know, you could almost do that at home because that is all computer generated stuff for right. the most part. Um, but you're not going to make like the perfect sounding pop records like Tom Petty and Rick Rubin made or something. Yeah. But uh, but it is cool when you hear home recordings, like you said, that are meant to sound like they were done in the, in the living room. Yeah. And not striving for that and failing, like doing this is what I want it to sound like. It's a weird balance. Because mm-hmm. then, like, there's also whatever TikTok and all this shit is, and mm-hmm. it's like that that doesn't have enough mysteriousness in it to make it interesting to me when I'm just like, clearly someone just cut on their phone and they're just like, they're, they're doing like the, the thing right now is this, I'm not going to dignify it with the details of what I was about to say, but there is when, with TikTok, like a piece of a song will get really popular. Yeah. And so the thing will be, okay, well, I'll just make a video of me doing that same piece because that's the trend. Like, everybody's recording themselves uh-huh. doing, like, five lines of a song. Uh-huh. I don't use TikTok, but I yeah, see these I, things. I, I don't know much about it at all, but it does seem like that's what happens. It's like there's tiny little things that yeah. become... Yeah, I don't know how if they're hit. I mean, it's not like a hit record, but I guess things can become hit records then if they're part... If that's the part, like if they took a part from a Marvin Gaye song or something... Yeah then some people go back and buy the Marvin Gaye record. I think that is the idea or yeah. like the um even the even the 
whatever the code is, the code that's associated with the song. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's, it's getting hit after hit after hit. Yeah, One yeah. of those things goes viral. So, yeah. like, the streaming numbers, I think, technically are going up. Oh, okay. So, so they do, their, that code is embedded in it. So they I get credit so. somehow for that. I have one, I just found it accidentally a couple of years ago. One song of mine, maybe there's another one, but there's one song of mine that somebody made a TikTok huh. thing from. And I'm proud that it is that it is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. I mean, it's pretty weird. It's like, you know, just like all of them, it's like 15 seconds long or something. But it's some, it's like some weird filter, and it looks like a mask, and it looks like you can't even tell if it's a boy or girl, human, alien. And there's, in this one song off, off of uh, the Million Star Hotel record, it's not a poppy song. It's like a weird, sad song. And it's just that. I'm like, man, if I'm going to have one TikTok, that's a good one. Hell yeah. <laughs> I've not seen any evidence of me on TikTok. No, yet. I didn't either. I don't even know how I found this. But it's, yeah, it's weird. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll get a, you know, a normal one someday, but it's a good way to start. I'm going to I'm throw you a curveball real quick. Mm-hmm. Like, with everything we were talking about, I mean, I, I haven't had the, I haven't had the, the ups of the career that you have, you know, mm-hmm. I've, I've, it's been a lot more down to earth, a lot more just like I've played a lot of shows, mm-hmm. you know, some people like the shit that I do, but yeah, I haven't I reached thousands and thousands or anything like that. And I found that I've, I reached a point with all this, like mm-hmm. seeing what the internet was doing to the music industry, seeing what the internet was doing to like music consumption and music creation. Mm-hmm that I was sort of like really disenchanted with it. And this also goes with some other shit with like religious stuff and with mm-hmm. like the way I see the world. And mm-hmm. basically I had my own come down moment of kind of feeling disenchanted in a different way. And it really challenged my commitment to the, the musician identity. Mm-hmm. And that's, I've noticed like, I mean like right now you and I are dressed like this, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. I don't know. This isn't like a whole different world from how I would dress on stage, but like there, mm-hmm. there's like this thing, mm-hmm. like this thing, this level of seriousness that you can have, or mm-hmm. you go out and you have like, it's a little bit more like a wardrobe or a costume, or you sure, like, sure, you fucking like have yeah. the, that. Attitude. And I like that part of it. I didn't, you know, no, it's, it's I mean, great. with some artists, you know, I like. I think it's all part of the package. It know? is. Yeah. I mean, and it's like I, I have no cynicism about necessarily mm-hmm. that, but. Mm-hmm. I found myself not feeling like I could after the disenchantment came in. Mm-hmm. I found myself not able as much to give myself into the whole pageantry of it, mm-hmm. and I feel like that's part of the musician of, identity of you presenting know? yourself as some thing, like yeah. a, a concept or yeah. a brand or whatever. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you ever had any experience with that or not, but that was, I guess, well, the question. I have. I have I think I've always had a little bit of ambivalence, even though I respect the idea of being an artist or a songwriter. Like, I think it's almost a, it's not just noble, but I think it's almost kind of a religious thing to be able to, and I tell my other musician friends when they get down, like I get down, you know, what we do is pretty special. We make something that wasn't there an hour before Mm -hmm. or 
it wasn't there last week, and now it's this thing. We made it out of nothing, yeah. just like a sculpture or whatever. And that's a, not everybody can do that. You know, to us, it seems even though it seems hard to write the great song, it is. We could sit here and we could make up a song because we can, and, and without we just because we know how to do it. Yeah, but not everybody can do that. Most people can't do it, right. so it is kind of special. But you know, then there's the flip of like, well, okay, but so what? <laughs> you know, um, can you build a house? Can you, you know, heal a child or whatever? Right. Um, but yeah, so some I do value it and think it's like a great thing to be. And then, but I, when I'm out around real people, which I am around real people a lot in my job, I realize how sometimes how trivial it can be mm. you know to be a to think that you're special man yeah but you have to be but you have to think you're special yeah to do it that's exactly right so it's always a seesaw i guess you captured exactly my my crisis yeah. like perfectly yeah that's that's exactly what it is and it's because i know i know that that's what makes it better and that's honestly what makes i think other people gravitate Toward you is like when you deeply can connect to believing that that what you're doing is worthwhile and special mm-hmm. and unique mm-hmm. and, and and you believe it enough that you actually embody that uniqueness mm-hmm. but yeah then i run into these negative vibes of just like oh yeah it's not important in the greater context and that's that is cynicism in a way it's kind of yeah it's, it's not so, necessary to I think know. like that but you yeah i think it comes down to it you you just have to enjoy doing it um For other, for no other reward, mm. other than you just made, you made it, you made this thing, the craft. Yeah, and I mean, I guess it's the same thing as somebody. You know, if you lived out here in the woods, and you were whittling, you know, mallard ducks, you know, out of wood, and you had this thing, some people would love it, would yeah. appreciate it, but not everybody, you know. But you still made this beautiful thing. Um, it doesn't mean, and because nobody saw it, doesn't mean that it's not cool, right? Or that it's not valuable. It's not beautiful. You know, we it is. You do judge things by, you know, some kind of business thing or popularity thing, and um, and I'm not saying that I haven't been up and down and and down a lot, thinking like, well, man, why am I still doing this? Or uh, sh- should I've have had a real real job or a real thing but then my smart friends or therapists or anybody would tell you no you you did do these things these are great you know these are you uh you did have a real job whatever you want to call it whatever real job is but you made things and you and you were just being yourself and you were going through you know you were following some kind of path you know um i think it's also sometimes you have a real life you know and like mm-hmm sometimes pursuing that craft is a that's having a real life and we we think so much about the practicalities that come with jobs like mm-hmm. well do you have a real job do you have health insurance do you have uh yeah. do you have a death you know mm-hmm. like plan and uh, <laughs> you have a, yes death, i have a death plan life insurance i will be dead <laughs> let you deal with it yeah <laughs> you have a life insurance policy and a fucking 401k and all this shit and it's like all that stuff is cool. It's mm-hmm. very smart that people that, oh, yeah. that we have these things in society. But uh, 
to to measure that up against a life of pursuing something that you like actually deeply fucking care about mm-hmm. and really try to master being great at mm-hmm. uh it's hard to i don't know it's hard to dismiss trying to be great at something yeah oh yeah i i love watching or listening to people anybody that's good at something that they've really focused on you know whether it's being a electrician or a mechanic or anything i just love watching somebody that's really good at that thing no kidding i love just it gives me just good feelings and tingles you know it's like this asmr thing of just like watching a guy talk (laughs) about the carburetor or talk about all the you know if there's salesmen selling you something and they're talking about all the different things it's just it's a it's a beautiful thing to really know something inside out yeah and i don't know if i even know that i mean the only thing i know really well is probably just like top 40 and new minutia of music you know like i'm not that much into one thing i couldn't i don't know everything there is to know about bluegrass or or jazz music or you know i like all of it and but uh and i don't i have friends that are like know everything there is to know about the beatles you know every record they were made and every all the different pressings and numbers on them and everything and I've just never gone that deep into any of them. I think my thing is just more about trying to make something. And as you get older, as I've gotten older, it's been less it's been less easy to make them over and over and quickly, you know. Um, but the last ones I made, you know, the last record I made last year, I'm st- I like the, I'm proud of those. You know, yeah. I don't think I've made. Um, and this isn't really a boast. It's just because it's, it's, I don't think I've made any bad records yet, but that's just because I haven't made a lot of them. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, I made myself just like I didn't want to make bad records, you know, yeah. and I was content to, if I couldn't make but one every five or six years or even more, I was still okay with that, you know, but, you know, but, you could take the other tack of like, well, no, you should just go out and just knock it out, make a bunch of songs, you know, because that's the way to do it too. Just like, don't be precious about everything. Yeah. You know, I know that everything, I, I'm, a lot of these things I'm saying, I'm saying like, there's this, but there's the flip side. But that's the way it is. I think when you're trying to be a artist or some kind of a slightly outside of society, you're always like looking at that other side. Yeah, and you're always trying to see if you can balance it, or you know, unless you just go all the way into society and you're, you know, trading stocks, or you go all the way to this side and you're just a insane artist living in a cabin, you know, (laughs) like we almost are. Um, So, but so you're always looking back and forth, you know. Um, So it's. uh, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. Other than it's just, it's always a, a balance of like yeah. trying to be happy where you are and happy with what you've done and what you do day to day. And also this other nagging part of like, but I want to make, I want to make the great song. Yeah. Not so much, I mean, I have no illusions that if I wrote a really great song next week, that it would be like a hit song. You know, that's, even if I'd done it 35 years ago when I was in like a the record biz thing, 
it still wouldn't have been like satisfaction or something. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't, you know, there's just not that going to happen. But just for my own sake, you know, to write a song like that, I believe, like, oh, that's that's a good one. Yeah, you know, that does. And I do kind of. I'm okay if I write something that that gives me just even the tiniest bit of of buzz that the records that I grew up loving give me gave me you know so if i you know if you write something yourself you know it's hard for you to totally love it because you know how it was made and you can't really hear it the way a normal person would hear it but as you're making it sometimes you do you can kind of get excited about a little thing you know in your in your own song and if my own song could make me feel just a tiny bit like you know ray davies and waterloo sunset or something like that then i feel like okay that's good enough. You know, that's worth, hmm. that's worth doing, you know? Yeah. Um, that's interesting. I, I think I experienced songs slightly differently. Mm-hmm. I think I, I think I trained myself to, uh, there's the, the, that stuff we were talking about, the, the identity part. That's mm-hmm. like the ego part that needs to believe it. It, it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when it's active, it's convinced that like whatever, <laughs> Whatever songs on the table is just like, well, this is as good as songs get. That's right. This this guy is good. <laughs> Look how handsome he is too. Exactly. <laughs> and he's so tall. That's right. Tall and wealthy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It just it. That's how it works. It just is that yeah. devoted to yeah. its own genius mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. Well. Yeah. You have to. You do have to believe that you're special. To even think that you deserved, or why would you get out in front of people? And that's a pretty narcissistic thing in a way, you know, an ego-driven thing like that. You think they would want to look at you or listen to you do something, right? So you have to build yourself up to be something bigger than you really believe in. So you're always kind of fooling yourself, yeah, a little bit, because you know, like I'm not really a charismatic rock star. I'm not David Bowie. Even David Bowie is only David Bowie. He sure is. Oh, well, he he's an odd one because he really did, sep- except for maybe a couple of years, he really did separate himself. He was David Jones mm. when he wasn't on stage, and so he and he knew that, and he knew how to separate it. He had a few times where he was, where they overlapped, and he kind of lost his mind for a couple of years. Ah. But he, for the most, and especially in the later years, he was he was David Jones, and David Bowie was a thing that he could put on. And I mean, there's stories of him being in like big cities and like being in New York and walking down the street and nobody bothering him. And people would, somebody, his friend would be with him or a writer or whatever. It's like, how do you, do they not know you're David Bowie? And he's like, you want to see that? And he would just turn it on. And then people come out of the woodwork. Wow. Just the way he walked, the way he, presented himself what didn't get he didn't go change clothes or anything he just turned it on yeah and it was a thing you know and uh, that is fascinating yeah i know um but you do have to be uh yeah you have to believe in yourself to some degree and then fight that the ego part of it i guess keep it yeah mm-hmm. with, uh, try not to be a asshole about it yeah yeah the Triad Podcast Network is brought to you by Ashley McKenzie Sharp and the Sharp Mortgage Team, who are here to tell you that there are options for people in Winston-Salem ready to buy a home 
but are hesitant because of interest rates. The Sharp Mortgage Team can help buyers in many ways, including using North Carolina down payment assistance and a program called the 2-1 Buy-Down. How does it work? The buyer pays a fee at closing to reduce the interest rate on the buyer's mortgage by 2% in year one and 1% in the second year. This temporarily lowers the buyer's monthly payment to make the home more affordable. Then in two years, the buyer can look to reduce the interest rate by refinancing the house. Now that so many homes are on the market, this is a fantastic way to negotiate with the seller so that you both win. The Sharp team is here to help buyers all around the triad purchase their next home. Get started with a simple email, ashley at sharploans.com, A-S-H-L-E-Y at S-H-A-R-P-E loans.com, ashley at sharploans.com. Why are we both, why did we both find ourselves in the woods? Mm. Um... Well, in my case, I would I was looking for a house that me and my daughter could live in that would be a special thing that wasn't just a an apartment that we couldn't afford or a house in some part of town that was just didn't mean anything, you know. And I kept waiting and very patient, trying to like wait for something. I kept thinking, well, somebody's going to have a place that they they want me to be, or something's going to want me to be to this place. And so I was. I kept being patient, even though I kept getting needing to find a place. Uh, and a friend of a friend just said, "This friend of mine has a has a place that she wants somebody to live in. The rent's going to be fairly cheap because she wants you to take care of it and take care of the land and all that." And I like doing that stuff. You know, yeah. I would I would feel weird if I wasn't taking care of the land. And now, uh, um, so that's worked. That's worked out. I mean, I guess if I had. I could have ended up in town, but uh, something kept me from going there. I didn't want to be there. And so now I have this place that's kind of like your place here that no one would ever find if I didn't tell them how to get here. And um, and during the and like during the last two couple COVID years, even though I was lucky in that I had a job where I still went to because we never closed at the Shalom Project, we still had the medical clinic and food pantry that we had to run. So I was lucky that I was still around people. So that grounded me and mm. made me, kept me healthy in that way. And I had a thing I felt like was worth doing. Um, but I also think being out in the woods, like, you know, not seeing people and stuff, I'm a, kind of okay with that mm-hmm. for the most part. You know, If I didn't have a job and see some of the people that I really love, every few days maybe i would go crazy so i think i was just lucky that i'm okay with the uh the quiet and when i felt like the world was uh had slowed down you know because a lot of things just weren't happening it made me feel better i felt horrible for the sickness in the world and the tragic effects that it had on everything but inside me it felt better and i think it was just because selfishly it made me feel like the world wasn't flying by me Mm. made me feel like i was it was more at my speed and and so when i made started making that record that became the i'm starting to bleed i just felt like i was at my own speed and no i felt in a way i felt like well nobody's doing anything nobody's running ahead of me nobody's getting 
there faster. You know, I'm just so I can, I don't have to hurry. I'm just doing it. And, and it just flowed quickly. It was just like, and I wasn't even making a record. I was just making some demos or songs or something. And a friend of mine heard one of the songs, the, um, the title song, and he said, why don't you, and he's, he was in my very first band, a gentleman named Michael Kurtz. He was in my very first band in 1981 or whatever. And, but he now is the head honcho of Record Store Day. Hmm. All over the world. I mean, that's his. He kind of invented it. Huh. And he said, "Why don't you let me put out that song on a twelve-inch for Record Store Day, and we'll have it benefit the Shalom Project?" This was all his idea. And I said, "Well, okay." I hadn't even thought about what I was going to do with the song. And I said, "Well, why don't I try to find some more songs that somehow make it a little more of an album?" You know. So we had. So it's a five-track thing. Um, but that's how that came, totally accident of just like, I wasn't making a record, I was just making some songs. And I had one song that I really liked, a song called Tell Somebody, and I had made a version of it that I just thought, well, I'll, I'm just making a version so that I can play for other musicians and we'll make a real version at some point mm-hmm. with real drummers and real players. And Don Dixon heard it and he said, well, like, why are you want to re-record it? He said, it's not going to get better. He said, it's, it's not going to get any more exciting. It's already exciting. It's probably going to get worse. <laughs> and I'm like, you're, you're right. And he's always been good. I don't, he, Don Dixon always has so many ideas, and I don't agree with all of them. I don't have to agree with all of them. But he just has so many, and he just, he's always like, do this, do this. He's very pragmatic, just like, let's get it doing. Let's get it going, you know? And um, so, I, had, so he, I said, well, why don't you try at least remixing it? And he said, "Okay, I'll do it." And he sent, and he sent it back, and it just sounded great. And I even heard bass on it that I hadn't heard. And I said, "You play, you replay bass because he's like a world class bass player. Mm-hmm. You know, he's on the road with Mary Chapin Carpenter now. You know." And I said, "You you replayed that bass, right?" And he said, "No, no, man, I just turned yours up." You know, and it's like I did that, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and that whole record was just kind of an accident. You know, things that just kind of came together and. Um, so I'm hoping to be able to create that again somehow. You know, you can't really create something again by you know by accident. Something else has to happen to mm-hmm. create some new storm. You know, um, but yeah, it's, it's it is a decision now of what to how to put records out. You know, if you make are you supposed to make something? tangible thing because we all grew up loving these tangible things right or is it fine enough just to put it on the in the ether and they stream it or whatever I like records but they're expensive and expensive to make expensive to buy not even good for the ecosystem I guess either I don't know um, yeah. um, not that my, my little bit's going to make any difference um, I mean if I could make a real record every few you know and make a year every year or so it'd be great you know but uh, I don't know I don't know how to do it necessarily I'm just, I think I'll just make enough songs and then I'll have friends tell me that's good and or this, let's do this to it, or whatever. I've always, I have been probably less, uh, instead of like taking the reins and like, I'm going to make this kind of record this year. 
like I've I've probably been less like that and more like I've just got these things and I'm just going to see where it goes and some and then usually I have friends that will hear it and and it'll go some direction you know um, so yeah I could be I could afford to be more uh, proactive about my own I'm sure <laughs> output we, or whatever I'm sure we all could. <laughs> It is what it is, but Although, you know. Oh, speaking of home recordings, so this I guess this goes back to our home recording records that sound like they were made in a house. Uh-huh. You need to, if you haven't heard it, you need to go hear "Will to Love" by Neil Young. Okay, it's on his record uh, "American Stars and Bars," same record that has "Like a Hurricane" and some other songs. But there's a 11 or 12 minute song called "Will to Love" that is one of the most special tracks ever because he did it all one night in his house he rented a bunch of he told the like SIR one of the studio rental places to bring him out a drum kit and bring out a Fender Rhodes and bring out a you know xylophone or whatever set up in his living room probably like this Mm -hmm. he had a fireplace and and you can hear the fire the fireplace is almost the lead instrument it's almost the loudest thing on the track, and you hear it <laughs> popping all the time. The pine just popping, you know, and uh, and there's you know it's acoustic guitar and bunch of singing, but it's so loose and just swirling around, and it sounds like a love song. It is a love song, but if you really look, the narrative, the liter- the literal words are about a salmon swimming upstream, hmm. and how he has the will to love. And how he's dodging the harpoons, and he's just you know he has the will to do it, you know. Um, it's a beautiful song, but I know he was probably I think he had taken a bunch of peyote or something, you know, and sure. it was like an all night odyssey. But he did it all in one setting, you know, and uh, so it's it's it's, a, it's one of the ultimate home recordings. I I've never heard it. It's, you're going to be in yeah. for a treat. I, I look forward to reminding myself when I edit this to to pull that up yeah, while I do yeah. that. Of course, the basement tapes come to mind. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, yeah. classic. Uh-huh. Um, trying to think of the, I mean, really that uh, the Keith Whitley song is called "Tell Lori I Love Her." Mm-hmm. And it's so sad because it's like I, I, I mean, I think it was the only album he put out as a country megastar, uh, and it's like the last. It might it might be the last song on the track, mm. and the whole song is about if I. If my if I was stranded and my life was about to end, mm-hmm. tell Lori Morgan, Lori Morgan, yeah. that I that she was the only girl for me anyway. Mm-hmm. And you know, then like a couple years later, he ended up, mm-hmm. you know, going before his time. Uh, yeah, and yeah. it's real sad, like real sad in the context of Keith, who just was like a, a fucking. He was a great songwriter, great, uh, uh, great singer. Yeah, just, he seemed like a real cool guy. Yeah, I've I've never heard that. I'll have to check that out. I'll try to remember to send it to you. Okay. Tell Lori I love her. Yeah. So, so when, what so what are you gonna do? What's your next? What's your so next funny. thing? You're gonna make some. I was about records? to say, like Doug asked me the same thing after we, because I I've been sitting here trying to figure out the same shit you and I are talking about. Like, what do we do? Mm-hmm. And Doug also asked me, and uh, I think my answer is getting somewhere. Like like when when he was here, I I felt a lot more like man fuck it I don't know but I feel like well Caleb told me I was asking him like Mm -hmm. what about some ideas I was having and he said you know I think right now in the world 
no one knows what to do and everybody's just the the idea is throw stuff at the wall see what sticks mm-hmm. for you and mm-hmm. everything's as good an idea as anything else I you think, know i think no i think that's right i think it's kind of the wild the wild west it is a little yeah. bit and i'm not going to start a tiktok but um you know yeah and, and i know a lot a lot of people are do using that in a way that's helping their careers out or whatever but i don't want to give in too much i, I don't want to make my music smaller and smaller and smaller necessarily i want to continue mm-hmm. to push against the grain a little bit and try to make it more of an experience and bigger mm-hmm. and so i don't know one thing i've been playing with is on something i heard the term visual album mm-hmm. and that intrigued me and of course like lemonade by beyonce comes mm-hmm. to mind mm-hmm. and like a lot of cool works yeah. that interpret albums like mm-hmm. Cashavelli Morrison she did mm-hmm. her, her al- the movie movie with, uh-huh. so yeah I, I think I want to take it a little more in the home recording world though mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. kind of do more documentation of the artistic process maybe like mm-hmm. remove the fourth wall a little bit though then again throughout the conversation I've been really unsure about that because like where we started was talking kind of about the value about keeping of the that mystery. Wall. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. That's, that doesn't, but it can be done. You know, it can, all these things, like I said, that, like Wilco did that. Like or there's, that, you know. there's plenty of people that are totally open with their audience and communicate with their audience all the time about what they did that day. Yeah. And, you know, my first, uh, intuition when I see that is like, Oh no, don't tell everybody everything. <laughs> yeah. Just don't. But people know how it works for some people. You yeah. Know? And they're just, and that connects with people. And they, uh, I think I just grew up in a time where you didn't really know artists, you know, because you, you know, if you didn't see them on TV when I was young, you, I mean, the only thing you saw was the record. And even then, you might there might not even be a picture on the front. You know, yeah. there were, there could be literally could be bands that had hit records that you had no idea what they looked like, mm-hmm. and that was kind of a cool thing. I love that. Yeah, and um, and so I, I think I, I think just coming from that era, I kind of like it, but that era is long gone. You know, so now yeah, and so you do have to. Uh, well, sort connect of. somehow, sort even of. if it's even if even if it's in, in a quiet. Even if your connection is that you don't talk to them, you have some way. You know, even like if somebody as poetic and strong as like Nick Cave, he has a tremendous like online conversation with his fans. Mm. He talks all the time to them. People write him letters and he writes big letters back, Mm. like serious, really thoughtful letters. Yeah. And, you know, he's about as serious a performer and songwriter as you could get and he doesn't I think he lets the songs still have the mystery hopefully but he's not afraid to be a human and talk about it I mean yeah man that's like Mm -hmm. that was a reservation I had when I started this thing was because I was like this is really showing people my creative space and showing them a conversational side of me that also is opinionated and shit Mm -hmm. and it's like that's different that's not what I do with the music and so I had to think about that a lot doing this. Mm-hmm. I decided to go with it, and I have been glad I did. Uh, I don't know if it necessarily benefits my music in any way, but it does benefit, I think, my connection to people who give a shit about me as a person and just, mm-hmm. like, 
our community, like our real community that we live in. And whatever, if that benefits the music in any way, that's cool by me, but I don't know. But, you know, so that's one of my thoughts. Mm-hmm. My primary thought is we, you used a phrase that I agree with about the religious component that there is when it comes to identities like this, including music ones. And mm-hmm. I do think there's like magic and stuff yeah. involved. And mm-hmm. I think for me, wherever we are in the world right now is really tough on places like the Ramcat and Gas Hill and like getting people there. And mm-hmm. uh, I want to continue to try to draw people to experience that with us, with the musicians. But in the meantime, I was mentioning to you, like I had this, I had this uh, party where it, some musicians came over and we mm-hmm. played and this too is an extension of this idea. It's like, my interest right now is relating to people as musicians instead of like feeling like there's any competition or mm-hmm. there's any like, well, who's, who's the best at this or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like I'm yeah. kind of, that's all set aside. Yeah. I'm just trying to like relate to people and look for opportunities to like maybe play music around people and, mm-hmm. and enjoy music together as a community, as music appreciators and as music creators. Uh, so that's like, one of my big values right now and i'm also letting that inform i think how i'm going to approach my my creative stuff like i want to that's i think the inspiration to make it more visible to people Mm -hmm. is just like sharing that space with more people instead of it being this this like thing that not that many people are allowed to know about or something i think it can be and you can figure out a way to do it to where you still make very personal songs and records and and show some of some process, some of the process, some of the whatever, and it's and it have a connection, but still not mess with the magic of the songs. You'll figure that out. Yeah, yeah. And I would, yeah. I need to, you know. I always want to connect with. I mean, when you make a song, you don't. Even though the big reward for me is making it, and just having it be there. You know, the next step is like, well, it would be nice if somebody heard it, and and then they said, oh, that's they yeah. did something to me. <laughs> right. You know, they don't really quite live totally in a vacuum. Although sometimes I'm fine with them living there, but yeah, you do like people to hear what you do, I guess. And uh, so, yeah, any way you can get them out there to where they even want to hear it, seriously listen enough. You know, like you said, if it was something was on streaming or television in the background it is very passive you know and it's hard to get somebody to hear a song even all the way through yeah once if they want to hear it if they will listen to it all the way through once and maybe again that's a big deal that's kind these, of a these days yeah. yeah so yeah making it all the way through is one thing um in the world of tiktok and 15 second songs yeah. or whatever <laughs> but yeah but I, you know but yeah we can't quite you can't we can't try to like fit into all that stuff like you, you just got to do what you like and i happen to like weird long records and yep. and uh and things that aren't spelled out right away you know that you don't quite know what they mean because they stick with you for a long time yeah um but there's plenty of things that are just immediate you know like a james brown record you're like i know what that means <laughs> <laughs> i love it <laughs> No kidding. I know. <laughs> well, uh, I guess in closing, I guess we can yes, start sir. wrapping it up. Okay. I mean, what do you, uh, 
what 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 might what what might you what do you have have what do you have like coming up and shit? Well, tangible worldly things. I have a show tomorrow night uh, at the Ramcat Gas Hill Room. Um, my friend Laura Lynn Dossett is a longtime friend and kind of collaborator. I've sung with her and she's sung with me. Um, she's going to come and open for us and we're going to play some with her and we're going to make her kind of rock in a way. <laughs> uh, we kind of push her. We had a rehearsal the other day and it's fun to hear her sing over some noise. Yeah. And uh, and then she'll sing some with me. She's, she's such a great harmony singer that you know we don't have to really practice she knows how to find harmonies and and i'm a horrible harmony singer so she just makes me sound like i know what i'm doing um so we're gonna do that tomorrow night with the full band and then um i think i've got some kind of show in october but i think the main thing is is trying to figure out kind of what we've been talking about like how to make a next something whether Mm -hmm. it's an album or a just a bunch of songs singles you know i don't know knit a scarf or something make something you know i don't know um i think i'm gonna have to work a little bit more on angus mclaughlin's movie um that we made some music for um and so that'll be that'll be something to look forward to um i like so i do like uh i'm always battling the impulses of living out here in the woods being by myself and Mm -hmm. And then also needing to be around people, not just friends for human contact, but in a musical context, you know, just, you know, knowing that if you're around people that you like and admire that are better at you, better than you at something, that things would ha- are going to happen, right. you know? And I always under, <clears throat> I always underestimate that. I just like think, uh, like I don't. You know, like I don't leave the house. I know. And but if I, but when I do, and I sit with some other guitar player, some other singer, or some other writer, you know, that I like, you know, and that I admire, that I think are better than me, or, or at least, not better, just like that I think are right, you know, that feel good to me. Um, then things happen, you know, and you realize like this was easy because I was around some other people. You know, we accidentally wrote a song, mm-hmm. whereas I, if I'd sat at home, I would have just found all kinds of reasons not to do it mm-hmm. or not to finish it, you know. Um, so I think the being with people is good, you know. And you don't need that many people. You just need a few friends, you know. I think that's the good thing to end on. Like I have a, so- a song of mine, there's this a line that's totally dumb and simple. Like sometimes you need a friend, all you need is a few and Laura Lynn has sung this with me. Some, some, someone to lay you in, lay you in your bed and watch over you. And you don't need many, you know. You just need a handful that you feel like, you know, get you, and you know, you don't have to try to convince everybody to like you. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh that is fitting. A buddy of mine <laughs> sent me a little video of Joey Diaz, kind of saying something like, "Jody is a comedian I like mm-hmm, a lot." Mm-hmm. Saying something very similar, just yeah. the value of a couple of real friends uh-huh. compared to like a dozen uh, not real ones. Yeah, <laughs> you know? well, Chuck, the singer Chuck Prophet always calls them airport friends. Like, how many friends do you have that will actually pick you up at the airport? Mm. 
I like that. <laughs> that you could call and you knew they would be there. About how many <laughs> friends would wake up at four yeah. in the morning uh-huh. to take your ass? Yeah, like three or four, maybe, you know, <laughs> yeah. if that, you know. So, yeah. here's to airport friends. No kidding. <laughs> well, Jeffrey Dean Foster, I think we did it. I think we made the perfect podcast. All episode. right. <laughs> Exciting. Thank you, Tyler. Dude, thanks for for real for doing this and for like indulging in all my curiosities about your career so far. So, well, thanks for having me out to the to the woods. Hell it's yeah. Be- beautiful out here. Well, uh, come back again when we get the music happening yeah. and uh we'll this play some music. This would be a great place to to do something. Hell yeah, man. Okay. See you soon. Sounds good. Bye. Mm-hmm.